Well, good morning, Ascent. Good to see you guys. If I haven't met you, my name is Blake, and they let me be the pastor of this awesome church. And uh, I get to do my favorite thing, which is open God's Word with you and preach for a little bit. And then we're going to go out and we're going to celebrate together uh, all that God has done. And uh, the reason why we celebrate is Jesus. And this sermon really is kind of skipping ahead from where we normally are. Normally what I do when I'm preaching is I will pick a book of the Bible and uh, we just go chapter by chapter because you don't come for my ideas. I believe you come for God's ideas and God's words. And so I want to try to get out of the way as much as I can. Uh, And last week we left off in Nehemiah chapter 4, but I'm skipping ahead to Nehemiah chapter 8 because Nehemiah chapter 8 is all about celebration. The book of Nehemiah is all about God's people rebuilding Israel and rebuilding the walls. And what we find in chapter 8 is the job is done. God was faithful to the people. And so now it is a time for celebration. And Ezra stands up and he tells the people, you ought to celebrate. And I just want to be really clear as the pastor, when we do things like the fall festival, which we try to do every year, we do several things like this. I want you to know celebration is not just kind of off to the side of what we do as a church. It's one of the key things we do as a church. You know, you might be here today and think, well, I think prayer is really important and reading God's word is really important and serving the poor is really important. But the celebration part, you know, I could do without that, you know, which you're probably not a very fun person if that's what you say. (laughs) But the truth is, and you might not know this, even if you are a Christ follower, is that God cares about our celebration just as much as he cares about our prayer. What we're going to do after this service is just just as much an act of spiritual obedience to God as it is when we read God's word. Celebration is a huge part of what God wants for. Uh, In fact, I could start reading all the texts where God literally commands his people to have a party. But if I did that, it'd take up most of the service. And we see three times a year in God's calendar in the Old Testament that literally the people had to stop what they were doing and celebrate what God had done for them. And that's exactly what we see in today's text. So we're going to look at three reasons why we celebrate, why joy is important for the Christian life. And I'll, I'll pray for us and then we'll jump into it. But I want to start with this warning. Do not be like Judas. Judas is the one who betrayed Jesus. And Judas sounded very spiritual. In fact, there's this scene towards the end of Jesus' life where Jesus comes in to a place where a woman is. And she takes this perfume worth of, of like a whole year's worth of wages. And she breaks it open and she pours it out on Jesus. And Judas, like many religious people, says that money could have been used for the poor. And you might look out there and you see the inflatables and you see everything and you think, wow, well, you know, church could use this on the poor. You know, instead of the kids playing on inflatables, maybe they should be getting catechized in the ways of the Lord. And, and, And what I want you to know is Jesus rebuked Judas. He said, Judas, you will always have the poor, but you only have me for a little bit. In other words, what Jesus was saying is you ought to celebrate me. (laughs) You ought to celebrate that you have me. You ought to celebrate what I've done for you. And so church family, in obedience to God, we are going to celebrate today. We're going to have fun in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. Our hearts are filled with joy over what you have done for us. God, when we look at ourselves, we find nothing to be joyful about. Some of us, we come into this place and we look at our circumstances and we find nothing to be joyful about. Some of us come in this place and I am very aware that their souls are heavy. Their hearts are weary. And yet, God, on this day, we look not at ourselves or our circumstances, but we look to you. And we look to what you've done for us in Jesus. And as we look to you, we are filled with great joy. So, God, I pray we would obey you today and we would celebrate in the name of Jesus. Lord, I pray this thing, these things in your name, and I pray for your help today, God. I cannot preach the way I want to preach unless I have your help. I cannot fill these people with joy unless you help me do it. So, God, I pray for your help. Amen. Amen. 
Nehemiah chapter 8, and we're just going to look at verses 7 through 12. Uh, And I'm going to start in verse 7, and we see the first reason why we celebrate. The first reason why we celebrate is we celebrate because of God's grace in light of our sin. Look at what it says, Nehemiah 8, 7 through 9. It says, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatah, Hodah, Messiah, Kilida, Ezariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, who were Levites, examined, explained the law to the people as they stood in their places. They read out of the book of the law of God, translating and giving the meaning so that people could understand what was read. You guys see what I'm doing right now has been done for a very, very, very long time. Even in the Old Testament, what they do? They stood up, they said, here's what God's word says, and then they tried to explain it to the people. What am I doing? Here's what God's word says, now I'm going to try to explain it to you. What I will notice, something has changed though. Did you notice what the people were doing? The people were standing up. Now the preacher has to stand up. I think we ought to try to bring that back. Some of you guys complain because we stand too long during singing. Back in those days, they had to stand during the whole service. and The preacher got to sit down. That has nothing to do with the sermon. I just thought I'd point that out. <laughs> Verse 9, it says, Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. It's kind of a funny scene. They all get there. They're ready to celebrate. They begin to read the words of the law. And Ezra and Nehemiah are like, we're going to have a party. And everybody starts crying. And he's like, no, this is not what we're supposed to be doing right now. We're supposed to be celebrating. But the truth is, is when we look at God's law, we will cry. That's what always happens. If you think of God's law, you can think of it as a standard or a measuring stick for your life. And what you will find is no matter how good you are, you come up short. The Apostle Paul says none of us are righteous. So I could stand up here as a preacher and week in and week out make you feel terrible about yourself. (laughs) I mean, I could really do it. You think you had a good week and I could get at you for the thoughts that you've had or the things that you did wrong that you didn't even know you were doing wrong because that's what God's word does. In fact, uh, James says God's word is like a mirror. And I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I get sad when I look in the mirror. You know why? The mirror doesn't lie. I look at, I, can, I might think I look good. You know, I've, I've been losing weight. And then I, I look in the mirror and I go, wait a minute, I have not been losing weight. You know, or this morning, you know, I've been, I was trying to help Taylor get the infant ready. And normally after I uh, shave, I look in the mirror. I have no idea if I have patches of hair on me right now because I didn't look in the mirror. And I'm kind of, you know, feeling good about it because I haven't seen myself. But if I look in the mirror and I see myself, I can't ignore it anymore. I know that something is wrong. And the same is true when we look in God's word. We can ignore it with bliss until we look at God's word and we see what the standard is and we see ourselves not measuring up. The result is that we will weep. But we see what what Ezra is saying is he's saying this is not a day for weeping. You know why? Because we're not looking at ourselves on this day. We're not measuring ourselves to our own faithfulness. We're looking somewhere else. Look at what verse 10 says, the beginning of it. It says, Then he, he being Ezra, said to them, Go and eat what is rich. Drink what is sweet. By the way, that's wine. He says, Go eat a big fat ribeye and enjoy some wine with it. And send portions to those who have nothing prepared. In other words, you're going to throw a party, and even the people who didn't bring anything, they're invited on into the party. Since today is holy to our Lord. Did you catch that? Why we're supposed to celebrate? It says it's holy to the Lord. The the word holy means set apart. It's a day in which we're not focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on God. This is exactly what Ezra roots it in in chapter 9, verse 33. He says, you are righteous. And he's talking about God. God, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us. Because you have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Friends, this is the gospel, which means good news. It's not that you have done anything good or you read your Bible or you are a moral person. No, the gospel is you are unfaithful, but look at God. He has been faithful to you in Jesus Christ. 
He lived the life you could not live. He died the death you deserve to die. So now you get to be counted a child of God. It's got nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus Christ. And if you understand that, guess what happens? Guess what begins to well up inside of you? Joy. It is a day for celebrating because I'm not looking at me. I'm looking at Jesus and what he has done for me. It's not based upon my faithfulness. It's based upon the faithfulness of God. Now, you might think non-Christians are the ones who need to hear this truth. You know, that you have fallen short of the glory of God and through Jesus you can be made righteous. That is true. If you are here today and you don't believe that, I want you to believe it for the first time and become a Christian. If you're ever wondering, is he trying to convert me? I'm always trying to convert you. Yes, I believe Jesus is the best way, the only way. I believe he is the one who can provide you everlasting joy. But what I want you to know, Christian brother or sister, is you need to hear this just as much, if not more. Because something happens in our life when we follow God. The more we learn about God, the worse we are tend to feel about ourselves. If we think of like the standard uh, that God sets for us, the way somebody becomes a Christian is they, for the first time, realize they are under that standard. And it fills them with sorrow. And then you hear a preacher tell you, but you can be forgiven in the name of Jesus. And if you remember back to when you first believed, Christian brother or sister, wasn't that joyful news? Weren't you like, you're kidding me. This is awesome. But what can happen is we can sit in a church like this. We can listen to sermons that I'm preaching like this. And the more I talk about what God's law is, the standard continually raises. And if you're not not careful, what begins to happen is you begin to weep and sorrow again. But what ought to happen is the more I preach the gospel of Jesus, the more you see God's grace. I mean, I thought God had a lot of grace back when I first became a Christian. But now that I know how really sinful I am and he still covers it, I know even more about the grace of this God. I read an awesome little booklet. I would recommend it to all of you. It's called Rest. And it's all about the gospel. It's only about 90 pages. If you want a copy of it, I'll get you a copy of it. It's completely free. But in this, it talks about how we are to rest in the gospel. And it talked just about this. I just want to read a quote uh, from this book. I could have read the whole book to you. It was that good. It says, Often when we struggle with sin, we start to doubt our own salvation. We start to wonder if it's really possible for a Christian to still be sinning after insert number of years of knowing Christ. In other words, you're like, man, I just thought I'd be better than this by now. I have this sin struggle and I thought it would be gone by now. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe after this number of years, God is finally going to give up on me. It says the idea of being simultaneously a saint and a sinner, which is what the Bible says. You are a saint and you are a sinner in Christ, tells us that our situation is normal. There is no need to freak out and worry about the state of our salvation. And this is the truth that helps us continue to battle our worry about our standing before God. We know that the Father has forgiven us in Christ and we can confess our sins knowing He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We can keep going back to God with our sins because we know that in His eyes we are still righteous. We can be confident that He will not kick us out of the family. This is the good news. I'm not up here with good advice, seven ways to live a better, more moral life. You can find that everywhere else. What I'm here to tell you is there's good news. It's not dependent upon you at all. Your righteousness is secured in Christ Jesus and what he has done for you. If you're a non-Christian, you need that. If you're a Christian, you need to hear that today. And you might say, well, Blake, if that is true, if we're righteous, no matter what we do in Christ Jesus, won't people just go on sinning? And you know when you're on the right track theologically? It's when you begin asking questions that the Bible answers. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 2. It says, what should we say then in light of all the grace that I just told you? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, if you truly understand Jesus and you love Jesus, you don't want to sin. 
The difference in the non-Christian and the Christian is not that one sins and the other doesn't. We all sin. First John says you're a liar if you say that you do not sin. The difference is that when the non-Christian sins, he doesn't care about it. When the Christian sins, it grieves his heart because he does not want to sin. He wants to follow after Jesus. So by me saying you are secured in Christ, if you are truly a Christian, you won't use that as a license to sin all the more. You'll see that as a relief. It will actually keep you going in the fight. Uh, There's a story that I've heard about a girl named Robin, and uh, she went to her professor at this uh, Christian college, and she had this class that she really, really liked. It was like world history or something. She really enjoyed the class, but this professor was known for his hard grading. And uh, she was beginning to to slip in the class. Her GPA was a 4.0. She had all A's, but she noticed that she had a C in the class after uh, the the first few weeks. And so they were coming into the point where you can drop the class or keep the class. And she said, Professor, I love your class, but I'm going to have to drop the class because I can't lose my 4.0 GPA. I mean, I really wish I could stay in your class, but I can't. Maybe I'll take it later. And the professor said, Robin, what if I did this? What if I gave you an A right now? No matter what else you get on any other test, if I gave you an A right now, would you stay in my class? And you're like, man, where was that professor when I was in college? (laughs) And she said, yes, of course. And guess what happened, friends? Over the course of the class, he went ahead and put in her grades, and she would have got an A anyways. Because there is something that happens when the pressure of performance is taking off of us. You live differently when you're living trying to get somebody's love than when you know that you are already loved. And the gospel says you've already got an A in the class. It's already over. Jesus did it for you. That does not make you not want to pursue godliness. What that ought to do is make you pursue it all the more, friend. And see, this is why we have joy. We have joy because we see what God has done in light of our sins. Uh, One more quote from the rest booklet. It says, this should not cause us to lower our standards. The standard of God's law doesn't change. It does, however, help us run to our Savior when we find ourselves sinning. It reminds us of the irrevocable gifts that the Father has lavished on us because of the work of Christ. We will continue to sin, but He will continue to smile upon us. Truly nothing, not even ourselves, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's good news, friends. Number two, the reason why we have joy is because joy in the Lord is our protection. It protects us in this Christian life. Nehemiah 8, 10, and 11 says this. It says, Then he, being Ezra, said to them, Go eat what is rich, drink what is sweet, and send portions to those who have nothing prepared, since today is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. That word where it says the joy of the Lord is your strength is literally the word fortress. It is like a protective uh, armor against the battle that we are in spiritually. The joy of the Lord protects us. Now, I could give you a whole list of the ways that having joy in the Lord protects you in the Christian life. But I'll just give you three from one of my favorite New Testament books, which is the book of Philippians. A lot of people call this the joy epistle because the Apostle Paul talks about joy in it over and over and over and over and over again. And what's really ironic about it is you think Paul must be in a really good place in his life to have this much joy. No, no. Paul is locked up in a prison cell about to get his head chopped off, and yet he's talking about joy in the Lord. There are three things, and they all start with D, because I'm a Baptist preacher, and we do that from time to time. I actually didn't plan it. I hate when Baptist preachers do that, but sometimes God's like, I'm going to give you an outline where they all rhyme or they alliterate or something just so you have to do it, and that's what happened here. Number one, it's our fortress against despair. I just told you, the Apostle Paul, about to get his head chopped off, doesn't know if he's going to be alive tomorrow. He wants to be somewhere else. He wants to be out preaching the gospel, but he's locked up in a prison cell. And look at what he says, Philippians 1, 20 through 21. It says, My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In other words, 
My prayer is that I would honor God no matter whether they kill me or they let me go. And friends, I know that that's what you want as well. If you're a Christian brother or sister, you want to honor God. You want to glorify him in all your actions. But my goodness, sometimes life beats us down, doesn't it? Sometimes our our own accusations against ourselves beat us down and we begin to wonder if we're going to be able to do it. And the Apostle Paul says he wants to do it. And what he roots his, his thing in, his whole idea in, is the joy that he has in the Lord. Look what he's looking at. He's not looking at his circumstances. He's looking at what God has done for him. It's my favorite verse in the whole Bible. Verse 21, it says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, when you have that perspective, friends, nobody can do anything to you. He says, for me to live is Christ. In other words, if they let me go, I'm going to preach about Jesus. I'm going to live for him. And if they come in and they say, Paul, okay, we're going to kill you. He says, great, I wish you would. Because if you kill me, I'm going to go to a better place with Jesus. You can't get on that guy's bad side. He can't have a bad day. Because no matter what happens, he wins in the end. It's like the opposite of being an Oklahoma State Cowboy fan. Every Saturday, every Saturday, I wake up with fear and anxiety in my heart. Will we win or will we get blown out? Like by the worst margin of a top 10 team since 1963. I just never know. And I'm often let down by Coach Gundy because he is not my Lord and Savior. But guess what? I'm never let down by Jesus. I never have to wonder if at the end of the day I'll be a winner or not. The worst thing this world can do to me is kill me. And God says, that's actually the best thing. You're going to be fine with me whether you live or whether you die. So it protects us from despair. Number two, it protects us from disunity. In, the, in, the end, in chapter four, at the end of the book, we see two church ladies are arguing. Now, this never happens anymore in today's modern church. But in the early church, <laughs> some of you laugh because you know. Uh, in the early church, they struggled with gossip and backbiting and fighting one another. And Paul tells them that the way to stop the fighting is not to you know, grow up and get over yourself. No, verse 4 of chapter 4 tells us what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. You guys should be so focused on the joy you have in Jesus that you don't have time to argue with each other about the carpet. You don't have time to gossip about one another's husbands because you're so overwhelmed with the joy of what God has done. Uh, I've been to Disneyland and Disney World when I was a kid, and it's ironic because they call it that most happy place in the world. But what you see is a lot of families fighting with one another. You see moms and dads fighting, siblings fighting, and it's really, it's really ironic, right? Because they're supposed to be in this really happy place, but they're just focused on their disagreements. Well, this is kind of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, we have been given everything. Do you realize that Jesus has given us every blessing in the heavens? All of it is yours. And you want to argue about the color of the carpet? Like, how ridiculous is that? You're at Disney World, and you're arguing with one another about who gets the first corn dog. Like, pay attention. We're all blessed. There's reason for joy no matter where you are. So it protects us from disunity. Also, joining the Lord, this is the last one, protects us from discontentment. At the end of the book, Paul talks about how he is content. He's learned to be content whether he has a lot or he has little. And you can go read the end of the chapter for yourself. But he roots this again, not in his circumstances, but in what God has done for him through Jesus. That is the source of his joy. And that is why he can be content whether he has a lot or he has a little. Whether he's out preaching the gospel or he's in a jail cell fearing for his life. So we must have joy because it protects us from despair, disunity, and discontentment. And also, as a pastor, it is my job to tend to your joy. I'm supposed to shepherd this flock. And one of the ways I shepherd you is protect you. And the way I protect you is by making sure that your joy is stirred up for Jesus Christ. 
It's why we're celebrating after this service. It's not because I was like, you know, we need to get some new people into the church or, you know, we, we need to, whatever you might think the reason is for why we're doing the thing out there with the kids. Maybe it was like, you know, he's probably giving the, the kids workers a break, which would be a great idea to do, but that's not why I'm doing it. God bless them. I'm doing it because we are to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us as a church family. In fact, this is what the Apostle Paul says his whole ministry is for to the church in Philippians. He says, since I am persuaded of this, this is verse 25 of chapter 1. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So I am the chief joy operator here, which is the coolest job. If you thought your job was cool, I love my job. My job is awesome. I get to stir up joy in us for Jesus Christ. Now, the last reason why we need joy and why we often need to celebrate what God has done for us is because we have seen and understood the gospel. This isn't so much a reason as it is a response. When you see the gospel, the natural response is that you have joy. And if you see the gospel and your response isn't joy, I would say you're not seeing the gospel right now. And this is exactly what happens at the end, verse 11 and 12. It says, And the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, since today is holy. Don't grieve. Verse 12. Then all the people begin to eat and drink and send portions and have a great celebration, because they had understood the words that were explained to them. Do you understand the words that I am saying to you? Do you understand the words of the gospel? Do you understand the words of Jesus? Because if you do, the result will be joy. I look at some of you sometimes, and I know it's just your resting face, but I'm like, I don't think they're understanding what I'm saying because they look miserable. I mean, sometimes I'm like, why are you guys here? You look so unhappy. And if you understood what I was saying, you'd be going, "Woo, this is awesome because That's what the gospel ought to do. That is the response we are to have in our hearts. And I understand sometimes we're beat down and we're weary in life. And that's not an every Sunday thing. But there ought to be times in which you are just overwhelmed with joy for what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus says, John 15, 11. He says, I have told you these things. Look why. So that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. If we look at the gospel, it should fill us with joy. We we look at God the Father, who has loved us enough to adopt us as His own. We go from being His enemy to being able to call Him Abba, Father. We look at Jesus the Son, who came and lived the life we couldn't live. He died in our place, He rose again, and He ascended to His throne in the heavens where He's ruling over everything, and He's doing it for your good and His glory. I mean, how joyful would you feel if you knew that the leader of the universe was on your side, working things out for your good? And if we look at the Spirit, He has sealed us for the day of salvation. He will complete the good work He has started in us, and He's going to conform us to the image of Jesus. If I say those things, and you believe those things are true about you, and there's no joy in your heart, I don't think you really understand what I'm saying. There's a, a story that I love. I, I probably tell it three times a year because I, just, I think it's, it's a funny story. Uh, and it's just so true to the, to the gospel experience that we have. It's a story about a college kid named Sergey. And uh, Sergey was a broke college kid. If you guys have ever been a broke college kid, raise your hand. You're like, I'm a broke adult. So <laughs> broke college kids eat weird things. You know, like uh, living on, on ramen noodles. And I know some of you guys think I'm a redneck because you, you call it ramen noodles. Please don't tell me after. I believe they are ramen noodles. And, uh, and so you're eating stuff like that. My favorite meal in college was I'd get those little rice cups for like a dollar white rice and I'd buy the cheap little hot dogs that really is not even all beef or anything. Like they just kind of put a whole bunch of random stuff in the hot dog and wrap it up. The cheapest hot dogs and I would warm the hot dog up in the microwave. I'd cut it up and I'd put it in the rice and I'd stir it all together. I ate that for dinner every night. I have no idea how many years that took off of my life. 
But it was all I could afford with my own money. I was a broke college kid. Well, Sergey is like that. He's a broke college kid. And one day, somebody knocks on his dorm room, and he looks through the little peephole, and uh, it's a guy in a suit. Now, when you're a college kid and a guy in a suit knocks on your door, you think something is wrong. Sergey was like, man, I don't think I did anything for the CIA to come after me, but I don't know why else a guy in a suit would be outside of my dorm room right now. So he opened the door and he said, uh, is Sergey here? And he said, I-, I don't know. Is it good news or bad news? And the guy says, well, it's, it's a little bit of both. May I come in? And so he invites the guy in and he says, your, uh, your uncle has died. Uh, and he said, Sergey said, my uncle? I have, okay, I mean, that's weird that you came and told me. I haven't seen him in a very, very long time. They weren't close at all. And uh, he said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And he said, well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, I hate that he died, but I also hate that you drove all the way to tell me because it's not that big of a deal. And he said, well, you, you must have made some impression on your uncle somewhere along the way. Because he left you every penny of his $500 million inheritance. Now, two morals to the story. Always be nice to your relatives. You never know what they have. And number two, what we can assume is that Sergey's life changed immediately. Do you think he went to college calculus the next day? (laughs) I wouldn't be going. I'm done with school, man. I'm doing what I want to do. And if we were to see Sergey and he was still in his dorm room and still eating hot dogs cut up and rice, we would feel sorry for him, wouldn't we? We would say, Sergey, I don't think you understand what happened. Because if you understood, you would be responding much differently than the way that you are responding. Well, friends, what you need to know is you have something 10,000 times 10,000 times greater than a $500 million inheritance. You have everything in Christ. You are an heir of all that is His This is amazing news. There's an old story that Charles Spurgeon used to tell about uh, two little boys. This one little boy walks with this rich little boy, walks with this poor little boy up to a hill. And this rich little boy is talking to his friend. And he says, my dad owns this building and that building and this building and that building. And then it says the poor little boy turned to him and said, that's cool. But my dad is in heaven and he owns all of this. That is what we have as our claim as Christians. It ought to lead to joy. Yeah, don't be like a little kid who's on the way to the steakhouse. Your parents are trying to buy you a juicy ribeye. And you say, oh, but can I stop at McDonald's? You, know, you don't understand the joy of a ribeye if you say that. And it's funny when kids do that, isn't it? You know, you're trying to take them. They're, pl- they're in the room playing with Legos and you surprise them. You say, we're going to Legoland today. All the Legos. And the kid throws a fit because they're like, I don't want to leave my little Legos. Well, this is how we are Christians when we find ourselves discontent or without joy in this world. You're missing the point. We're going somewhere so great that you ought to throw your Legos away and run with joy to all that God has for you. This is my message today, that you would have joy in the Lord. And the church ought to be a place. The church gathering ought to be a place where I fill you with joy. And for the times where I have not, the times where I've left you and you've walked away from here with a yoke on your neck, feeling like you need to do more or you don't measure up, I apologize for that because I have not fully done my job. Yes, there are times in which you need to be convicted by what God has called you to do. But conviction and condemnation are very different. True conviction should lead to a change in your life that you can be joyful about. Condemnation is when you leave here feeling beat down, like there's no hope. But there is always hope, friends, because it's not about us. It's about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Uh, One more quote from the rest booklet. It says, within the church, we find the constant refrain of the gospel pointing us to our final rest in glory with the Father. 
When the world attempts to rob us of this rest or this joy, to lead us back into pietism or sin, our brothers and sisters ought to be there to confront us, encourage us, and carry us when we cannot walk on our own. Our consideration moves from self-improvement to love and care for our family. We ask not how am I doing, but how are we doing? The Christian life was never intended to be lived alone. Podcasts, books, and online sermons are great, but they can never replace the God-given treasure of His church. You know why we're having this festival outside after this? Because you didn't just come for my sermon. If you came for my sermon, I apologize. It's probably very disappointing. You get what you paid for. You didn't have to laugh that hard. If you wanted a better sermon, though, I mean, I could give you like 20 pastors that I really like and you could listen to their podcast. But that's not why you're here. You're here for each other. And yes, I preach and I teach and that's a part of what we're doing to stir your joy. But as we go out there and we celebrate, we ought to be stirring each other's joy for God. So we're going to go out there and we're going to throw axes. And we're going to try not to hit anybody in the head with them. Please, for the glory of God, do not hit anybody in the head with the axe. I'm still not sure it's a great idea for our church family, but we're going to do that. And while we're throwing them, we're going to celebrate. And not just celebrate because we're having fun, but celebrate because we get to have the joy in Jesus Christ and what He's done for us. Let me pray for us before we close. Father God, thank You so much for the joy that is only found in You. God, I pray that our hearts would be filled with the joy that only you can bring. God, I pray these things in your name. Amen.